Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Um, it's time. I'm absolutely delighted to introduce my first guest for this week's program, Kate Mildenhall. Kate is a writer, she's a teacher, she's a PhD candidate and she is the host of the First Time podcast, which talks to debut novelists about their experience of being published. Uh, Kate's own first novel, uh, first novel, Skylarking, came out in 2016. It was followed by The Mother Fault. And her third novel, The Hummingbird Effect, is out today. Welcome to the show, Kate. It's lovely to have you. Thank you so much, Mel. Thank you for having me here. What a delight. Okay, let's get into it. It's a big one, The Hummingbird Effect. It's spanning... It's four interconnected stories. It's spanning space and time from depression era Melbourne to a sort of post-anthropocene in the year 2181. You are essentially following four female protagonists and their interconnected stories and their kind of competing desires to... Um, to find their own stories and to sort of act with agency and integrity in the face of considerable upheaval. The book asks huge questions about what progress is, what progress means when at the heart of it is um, a profit motive and a sort of patriarchal beating heart. Um, Can we ever go back? Do we need to? How do we start? I think we start by talking about the title of this book, The Hummingbird Effect. What does it mean to you and why is that the right title for this stellar and, you know, kaleidoscopic novel? Oh, that's a great question, Mel. And can I say thank you for that amazing introduction? Can you just come around with me when I have to talk about the book? Because like, this is literally the first day I'm talking about it and I still don't know how to describe it. So that was ace. Mate, I thank I've, you. I've been trying to be a hype man for people my whole life. I would absolutely love to do that. Just walk around and be like, this is Kate Mill. Blah, 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 blah. You are the yeah. perfect hype person. So the hummingbird effect actually came that wasn't the title for a really long time. Um, and it came in when I, I kind of exploded the book a bit from what it originally was and, and started trying to interconnect these four stories. And the hummingbird effect is a phrase. Um, and the, the guy, I suppose, who talks about it most recently is a man called Stephen Johnson from the US who now hosts, he's an author and he hosts, um, the Ted Talk podcast. Um, and it is, uh, different to the, butterfly effect in that the hummingbird effect describes um, when an innovation in one particular area has unintended consequences in another area. So people often use the example of the light bulb and and how that kind of changed history um, because it was invented and it didn't just change history because people could see better. So the reason that it felt like the perfect way to bring these kind of really disparate stories together is exactly what you said. I'm asking about this idea of what changes, whether it be the the chain system of slaughtering or AI or, you know, various other ideas, how they have changed society and they've changed the way we think about the world and and they have had really unintended consequences. Fantastic. Um, 
I think we should go to the chain effect of slaughtering because left on its own without context, it sounds... <laughs> sounds pretty horrendous. Sounds, I mean, it sounds spicy, yeah. Um, the book, I suppose the book's... Uh, I don't know if it's an inciting incident, but the book opens in sort of Depression-era Footscray, Melbourne, and it's centred on uh, the abattoir there, the meatworks, and um, a young woman named Penny, um, the woman who she is boarding with and a relationship that, fl- that sort of flourishes with one of the slaughtermen and the slaughtermen uh they've got like the hot shot job at this time they um you know they they kill the animals by hand they gut them and along the line um a technological innovation basically sort of wields them as um, unnecessary, mm. you know, and from there things explode out. Tell us, how did this part, where, where was the sort of the tension and the interest in this particular kind of industry for you? So this is where the book actually started. Um, my Part of my family have lived in Footscray for a really long time, um, quite close to where the old Anglis Meatworks um, were. And at a, at a family party one night, uh, my uncle, who was mayor of Footscray for, for a time, was talking about when the kind of dilapidated uh, meatworks out of use um, went up in flame. Um, before they were kind of knocked down and made made way for housing, and he talked about this idea that the the fire was so hard to get under control because there was a hundred years worth of sawdust and fat in the floor, and so it just went up. And you know, you're a writer, Mel. You know that sometimes an image just sticks with you. And yeah. when you know that was when I was still writing the Motherfold at the time, but I went home and I started a new doc- document just with the date and with this just been at a party and this idea of the meatworks and fire. Um, just kind of really exploded for me. And then when I went in and and did the deep dive into the research and there's extraordinary kind of oral archives of meat workers and the Footscray Historical Society and the Living Museum of the West all helped me out here. 1933 was the year that they bought the chain in. So the chain, as you said, changed the way that meatworks and that industry operated forever. It's still the system that is in place today. Um, and there, and it was a strike. The, the slaughtermen had a strike. It was an illegal strike in the end. Uh, the union kind of of everyone else, the meat workers union, didn't join them. But I was struck by this idea of a strike um, of the women who would have been working at the meatworks at the same time. Of this really, it's described as really as a community, as a beating heart, as so much of the industry around Footscray was. Um, and, you know, the footy team came from there. The cricket team came from there. The, the women were all friends. The kids played there on the on the weekends. So I just became deeply involved in what that turning point meant and, and asking the question, I suppose, if the chain hadn't come in, what, what situation would we be in now? Yeah, what would have happened to those people? Wow. And then from there, I mean, because that is, you know, a, I think a really rich and meaningful investigation and novel of itself but then in addition to this storyline you're also in the world of you know early 2020 the onset of COVID um, inside an aged care home having a look at a character who is you know related distantly to the Meatworks character asking questions about the quality of care that those people received in the context of this 
extraordinary upheaval. And then from there, you've got two other plot lines as well that are mixed in that hummingbird effect, as you say, the way that this technology has reverberated throughout generations and throughout time. I'm so curious to ask you, you mentioned before that you started writing your novel and then you exploded it. (laughs) Um, How did you explode it? Is that where we're getting these intersecting narratives and how did they kind of come to you? Yes, well, you absolutely um, nailed it when you said that could have been a novel all on its own because, in fact, to begin with, I was just writing the 1933 story of of Peggy and Lil and the Meatworks um, and and the strike. And then we went into... COVID times. And I had, uh, you know, I was doing so much research on on Meatworks. Um, I couldn't get into an abattoir, which I eventually did, but of course, because of um, all the restrictions, particularly around Meatworks. But because I had so many Google alerts on my news about Meatworkers and strikes and industry, I still I I couldn't help but start to notice the extraordinary connections between what was happening to meat workers during those early days of the pandemic, both here and in the US and around the world, who were forced to keep turning up to work in these terrible conditions, which were borne on by the chain, because Mm. that's why you stand so close together. Um, So you can each just do one cut. Um, And for a novel that I knew I was writing that was about invisible labour and workers' rights, um, I was like, I can't ignore this. This is this is something I have to write about uh, as well. I have to write about now. And, of course, and then, you know, the aged care workers, all of that which was in our brains during the lockdown, that's, that's when it exploded. Um, and at the, sa- at the same time, my darling grandmother who who died last year she got got sick towards the end of towards the end of the pandemic years uh, and it was really such a a stress for all of us trying to keep her out of aged care, trying to keep her at home, not because we thought that the care wouldn't be good, but because we knew how it would limit us in mm. terms of being able to see her and care for her uh, so that ended up being the real heart I suppose of the story then I wrote about Hilda in in twenty twenty Yeah, wow. I think that um, it's impossible to talk about this book without talking about um, the dynamics of care and and the way that that it intersects with the workplace um, because we're sort of, uh, you know, we've talked about the meatworks, um, we're edging into sort of talking about aged care. When we fast forward into those plot lines of the future, um, we're looking at a queer couple, uh, one of whom... um, you know, is a singer who can't sing for whatever reason, who takes on a job that she doesn't want to do because she can have her IVF kind of compensated for or paid for. Um, and a really strong through line in this book is that, you know, uh, women and non-men characters are so incredibly impacted by decisions that are made and innovations that occur w- um, that they don't have any say in. Mm. Why is that such a juicy and fruitful sort of line of interrogation for you? So I think it was that I love I love how you've described that, and especially for Lara and Kat, who who are the the couple in um, just the very near future. I was so interested in what I was starting to read, particularly about healthcare and healthcare being woven into um, workplace agreements. Um, Often in the US, here as well, big tech companies often uh, and and you know law firms offering women in particular this kind of uh, egg freezing or other treatments to keep them at work. To mm. you know that that's basically why they're doing it to keep them at work longer. Um, and some of the ethical and um, kind of 
legal ramifications of that. And I think that, you know, I wrote a lot of this book, Mel, quite angry. Mm. (laughs) Um, I wrote it really curious as well. I don't absolutely don't have any answers, but I think that the invisible labor um, that I wanted to look at is, is also reflected in these, you know, systems, the invisible systems that surround us in the, in the workplace, uh, that are there and often purport to be there to support us. And in fact, just root us over and over again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And often, uh, these sort of, these things are pitched to us as being good things, and we're so tired and so exhausted that we take whatever good thing. Absolutely. Um, and then it's and then it's there and yeah. it's a part of the culture now and how do we sort of get back? It's a really, really interesting line of inquiry. Um, there are so many things that I want to ask you. I think I think that I'd like to I mean, it sounds like this book has it's it's a really it's really steeped in history. It's you know, you are um, a fantastic sort of historical novelist for anyone that's read Skylarking, certainly. Um but this book also looks forward to the future and I'd, I'd really like to ask you about how those dynamics work together and I think, you know, the research proce- pro- uh, process for something that has already happened, you know, how does it differ and how is it the same to making um, predictions about our future and I think, you know, especially with that sort of the fourth storyline in mind which is set, you know, 150-odd years yeah. in the future how did you research for that? It's, it's a really good question, Mel. And part of the reason I think that I wanted to stick with originally this idea of writing, you know, straight historical fiction was I knew that for my last book, for The Mother Fault, doing the world building and the predicting about a, a near future story in that in that case was really hard on the brain. Mm. <laughs> um, and the research in lots of ways is the same. I remember people asking me about, about The Mother Fault, like, you know, how did you get the, the kind of the science right and the climate stuff right? And I was like, well, I... I read the science, you know, like that stuff is, is quite easy to do. I think the hard thing is doing that kind of far future stuff is whether or not you get stuck in writing about the collapse, Mm. you know, of society, for instance, or whether you push past that. And I really, I was reading, um, Kim Stanley Robinson, the ministry Mm -hmm. of the future was, was one example that I was reading. And in listening to interviews that he did, that idea of, of moving past the collapse, let's get past that and let's see how society kind of tries to work itself out again. Mm. Uh, So that was really interesting to me. And I actually tried to work backwards um, from this point in the future where I had these two girls. Uh, I didn't really understand the world that they were in, but I just kept adding in little details. I knew, well, it's the climate's going to be like this potentially. This Mm. is going to be where the sea level is. Um, These are some of the issues that they might be dealing with. And then I fell again, I fell into to rabbit holes of of research. So the the group that the girls, Mazanonics, um, beautiful characters, I love them so mm. much. Um, they fall in with this group called the Last Stewards, and they're really based on this idea of voluntary extinctionism, which wasn't something that I knew anything about when I started. But I started really just asking the question: Well, what about if 
what you believed in was that humans are just terribly bad for the planet and they should all be gone. What if, mm. how, how would you work towards that? And then I found them, this mm. whole group of people, voluntary extinctionists who have groups and badges that you can get if you, you know, sterilize yourself. Um, so a lot of the little details in there, although I've kind of mushed it all together, like I've mushed the language together to make this kind of new kind of new speak for new coast um the details are absolutely from stuff i was reading at at the time yeah wow um it feels like this book is really um and you get it from the propulsive quality of the text as well it's really built on this great mixture of kind of curiosity and rage and also compassion and i feel like on that point we should pause and take a little ruminating break This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton. It is uh, 25 minutes past 12 o'clock and we are, tuned, uh, we are joined in the studio by the wonderful Kate Mildenhall, author of The Hummingbird Effect, which is out today. Uh, we've been chatting about the four interconnected narratives that comprise the book. We've been talking about looking to the past and sort of excavating a possible future. And Kate, I think where I want to sort of pick the conversation up now is to talk about the process of sort of editing and feedback with this book because it sounds like uh, you originally had a very different conception of what it would be, that it would be this historical novel that was centred on Depression-era Footscray and around the meatworks. It expanded into something quite extraordinary in its scope beyond that. How did you, how did you get there and how did you sort of share that knowledge and that becoming with the people around you, particularly your publishers? <laughs> Very good question, Mel. Uh, originally I handed I handed in a draft of, of what was the, you know, the 1933 story uh, to, my, to my then publisher, uh, Fiona, who's utterly gorgeous. And, you know, she had a, she had a few questions and uh, she also said, Kate, I think you've tried to put everything you care about into this book. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I see that as a problem, I see. And then I was like, hang on a second, I can write a book like that. And, Mel, I am nothing but very, very stubborn. Um, And so eventually after I'd licked my wounds a bit and thought, okay, what am I going to do here? And that was at the same time as kind of COVID was exploding and all this stuff was happening. I thought, well, how kind of audacious can I make this book? Um, one of the things that's that's in the book, this other storyline that's in there, is this idea of an algorithm. Mm. Um, it's kind of AI that that can that can uninvent things. And really early on, as I was writing that, I was like, I am not smart enough to write this. Like, <laughs> I can't code. I, I was reaching out to all of my networks, all of my smart people, to go, Can you like help me build an imaginary algorithm? Is that something you can do? Uh, and what I really wanted was a visual for it. I really wanted something that that could represent that. Um, and so I was like, you know what I want in the middle of my straight up novel? I want a diagram. 
And I knew that a publisher wouldn't necessarily go for that. And I ended up um, finding this extraordinary visual designer from Sydney, Eva Harbridge, who is just an absolute talent. And she and I worked together to create this algorithm and this diagram that's kind of smack bang in the middle of the novel. And I remember being super nervous when I was pitching it to the publisher. Because you'd already done it. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. But I was like, I... uh, I really want a diagram in here. And so that kind of stuff allowed this this playfulness with what I was doing. And, you know, there's a whole series, which is a WhatsApp messages between a family. Um, and I wanted that. I wanted that playfulness, especially when some of the, you know, some of the content is is pretty hard and, and pretty dark. So I wanted that playfulness. And that was really fun for me as a creative to work with and play with as well. Yeah, I think that it um, it brings up some interesting questions as well around, um, you know, the AI question and questions of tech, which are so often posited um, in literature and in the media as being um, awful, human replacing uh, without heart kind of the, the you know that will outsmart us and turn against us and 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 be our ruination and and I'm, I'm curious to ask you about if if you think that there are ways that AI can enhance our kind of humanity and our tenderness like what, what do yeah. you think about oh, that? so much so I'll I'll admit and I've I've got this uh in the imprint page uh that I insisted on in the book because I know that there's a lot of very real issues about copyright about regulation of of AI right now it's a very big conversation um, I didn't intend necessarily to have my book that I've been working on for four years to come out at this particular moment, but I did use ChatGPT to help write the algorithm. And it was so interesting having conversations with ChatGPT where I was trying to go, I was trying to work out how it worked. You know, Mm. I was like, well, tell me, you know, where your data is coming from. And of course it can't answer a whole lot of questions and there were a whole lot of things that it it wouldn't do for me. But a lot of what is in the book um, is based on some of the conversations, kind of, I suppose, quite philosophical, ethical questions that I was asking ChatGPT, like, um, you know, if you wanted to destroy the world, how would you do it? Now that's a question that ChatGPT is not prepared to answer because it says I cannot help you harm other people but then if you you can pose it as a as a kind of a speculative question that you might be using in a philosophy class Mm. it will help you answer it so it was just kind of I think I went to a great panel the other night um mind over machine at the Wheeler Center and the creatives who were on that panel talking about this question of creativity and AI were saying you know there's this there's this playfulness, a playful space that we can be in right now where we are absolutely cognizant of and paying attention to the types of harm that, that could be coming from our use of AI. Um, and at the other end, we can be the human, the creative humans who are playing in this space too and, and seeing what it can do. So I had a lot of fun with that part and I know that it will bring up a lot of questions um, for people and, and for readers and I'm excited to have those conversations too. Yeah, I mean, I think one uh, passage, you know, of uh, from the text, which was your conversation with, uh, was it called Hummingbird? It's called Hummingbird, Hummingbird. yeah. Um, and it was sort of about you know, I think you'd asked or somebody had asked an open-hearted question about like bad inventions or inventions that were ultimately sort of detrimental to humanity. And the list that Hummingbird comes back with is quite extraordinary and quite contrary as well. And feels like juicy fodder for a dinner party or a couple of drinks. Absolutely. Um, 
Can you tell me a little bit about, like, I'm so interested in this idea of play and this idea of being in a playful space while terror kind of (laughs) also looms and that existing on sort of multiple levels because this book is highly engaged with what is happening in the world and the way that we care for people at the moment. But you're also writing this book that I imagine would have been delightful and also tormenting to write. Like, how do you bring these four stories together? How do you tell other people what your book is about when you have to kind of get people to back you and get it out there? How did you balance that how did you sort of channel that sense of play into your practice? You yeah, know? that's, you know, one of the most playful things um, that I did was really, w- was kind of looking at all these visuals and um, partly through uh, the PhD that I've been doing, which is about creative process. Um, I, I was trying to look at ways to to shape it. I was looking at myths. I was looking at other stories. I was looking at ways that the whole thing could kind of come together because I really wrote it as four different disparate stories and I was trying to work out how to put it together. And one of the things I did was um, find the work of the artist Paul Clay, who, you know, I'd seen clay paintings before, but I hadn't really been um, paying attention, I suppose. Uh, And uh, I got really obsessed and went down in depth and found his notebooks and all of this, uh, these diagrams and kind of sketchings about the creative process um, and his his deep thinking on, on art. And what I ended up doing was going out to my mum and dad's place because I needed the kind of big space to, to put the manuscript down in, to physically put it on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I used Clay's diagrams as uh, models to of, of ways in which I might shape it out. Um, and in the end, the one that I came up with and the one that is in the book um, that's only really important to me, uh, <laughs> you can't really see this, but that I shaped it um, going, you know, from the past and then out into the future and back again and, and keeping on coming back to the river in the shape of moth swings. Um, ah. And that was kind of the one of the ways in which I could make meaning. And, and what was amazing is that, and, and writers or creatives who are listening to this will know this feeling, is that when you split something up and and put two new edges against each other, those rough edges, that can really spark something new. And Mm. I remember I had the great privilege of speaking to Helen Garner last year for the podcast, and she was talking about that dynamic just in a sentence that, you know, when you split apart a sentence or you're editing a sentence, that energy and the buzz between new words can make something really different. And I really felt that when I was um, splitting up the sections and that helped me see some of the resonances and helped me at a, at a plot level um, without doing any spoilers, trying to work out some of the wormholes is the way that Mitch, David Mitchell talks about it, um, the wormholes between the, the different stories. Wow, fantastic. Um, Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it's been a delight and it's been very sort of nourishing, I think, to talk about your, you know, to talk about the book and to talk about your process. I know that The Mother Fault came out um, at a very challenging time and you were not able to go out and celebrate this book. It is not so much the case anymore with The Hummingbird Effect. Where can we catch you? What are you doing? Ah, I'm going everywhere, Mel, and I'm so excited. Um, there's a, a huge tour. I'm in uh, Melbourne this week. It's a launch on Friday night uh, at Trades Hall, which I think is sold out, um, but that's with Readings Books. And then I'm in Sydney and Brisbane next week. And there's a bunch of uh, events all around Melbourne and Regional Vic, and people can go to my website, which is just katemildenhall.com, to find the tour dates. Yeah, and you can also, if you like, go to the Wheeler Centre tonight, I believe, and you're in conversation with Andre Dow um, for the... McCraith House 
a house of one's own yes. conversation, which will be a really good one. We had a chat about that on the show last week. Kate, all the very best with the book. Please do pick up a copy of The Hummingbird Effect. It's out today. You can get it from the library. You can get it from a good indie bookshop. Um, we're going to go into a track and then uh, in not too long, we'll be joined in the studio by Grace Yee, who we're going to be having a chat with about her new book, Chinese Fish and also, if we're lucky, she might treat us to a little reading, which would be quite special. Stick around. Literati glitterati. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. On Literati Glitterati. My name is Mel Fulton. You are tuned to Triple R. It's about 16 minutes to one o'clock and I am delighted to introduce to you uh, this afternoon our second guest on the show, the poet Grace Yee. Grace Yee lives in Melbourne on Wurundjeri land and her poetry has been widely published and anthologised. She's won several awards and has... Um, and sorry, and has also taught writing programs at both Deakin and Melbourne universities. And in 2016, she completed her PhD on settler Chinese women's storytelling in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, Chinese Verse is a special book. It's a novel told in verse, which melds multiple perspectives, archival material and academic research about the Chinese diaspora living in New Zealand to tell the story of Ping and her husband, who leave Hong Kong for New Zealand in the 60s, raising four children and running a fish and chip shop in the suburbs. It's a, nuanced, it's a nuanced look at a community that has historically been characterised in two ways only, and I borrow this from the book, as both exotic mo- uh, model minority and yellow, meno- uh, yeah, and yellow peril menace. Welcome to the show, Grace. It's lovely to have you. Oh, thank you, Mel. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Uh, Grace, would you like to start by telling us, um, you grew up in New Zealand yourself. Yes. And the, and that has formed, you know, your own personal experience has sort of formed fodder for the novel. When did you have the decision, like when did the decision come to you or when did you start sort of writing this book? What sort of prompted it? Uh, I started writing the first poems for the book quite a long time ago. Um, I couldn't tell you how long ago that was um, because when I first wrote the first poems, um, they were just you know, here and there, and I didn't think of it in terms of writing a book. Mm. So it was quite a long time ago. And then when I started my PhD, I had to pull something together. So that's when it started to come together as as a work. Okay, fantastic. Yeah. I'm so curious about um, both yourself and Kate Mildenhall, who were on earlier, are both people who are working on or have worked on PhDs while also embarking on creative projects. And I'm so curious about how those two have worked together for you. Like the archival material that's included in Chinese Fish, is a lot of that drawn from the PhD? Can you tell us a bit yeah, about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the historical research... Um, definitely informs the book. Um, when I initially wrote the very first draft of the manuscript, it didn't include so much of the archival historical material, but the more research I did, the more I realised that this was a story that could not be told without it. Mm-hmm. So um, then I just started by, you know, just working with the parts that I found most interesting and, you know, over the years, because it has taken years, um, it's been a process of um, figuring it out um, 
how they sit together, how those threads all sit together. Yeah, I think um, that's sort of been a, a gentle theme to the show this week, working out how themes work together what to leave, uh, what to put in and what to leave out. And I think that's something that is so um, masterful and really, really moving about Chinese fish is the sense of immediacy um, and, and your natural sense of, um, of an ear for the, for the way people speak and the way people respond in a moment. Um, so it's interesting to me that you started writing these small pieces some time ago and then, and then brought them together with the other things how tell us tell us a little bit more <laughs> how did you do that where did you make the choice ah oh, um i don't know I, th- I think it was fairly intuitive and but you know what throughout this whole period of working on the book the thing that came to me most strongly was that you know with all this historical research is that i felt very strongly that history is never past so um all of these extracts that i've got in the book in many ways, they're not about the past because mm. they resonate so strongly in this period. The book is between the 1960s and the 1980s, but even now, those things still resonate. So everything feels very present. Absolutely, and I think that sometimes the you know the formal tone of, of these sort of historic documents uh, it really chimes with um, I think people's preconceived ideas about the way people live or the way that people are and judgments that they've formed that they don't even necessarily know that they have. Um, it's it's a really really interesting dynamic to have that playing out while people are speaking and acting and responding in various moments. Um, I think something else that you do that's really exciting and quite beautiful in the novel is um, you play in the same way, well, in a different way, but similarly to Kate Mildenhall, you've got this interesting sort of um, pagination happening. Uh, The work is illustrated throughout. Um, There are different, you use different sort of fonts and colours and ways of sort of delineating who's speaking and how they're speaking and when. Um, And again, that gives each moment a profound sense of space and a little bit of sort of room for the reader to ruminate on those moments and how they play together and how they stand alone. Can you talk to me about the sort of, was that a collaborative process, putting the book together in that way or was that your own vision? I how? Feel, hmm. I feel like I'm still doing it. <laughs> um, you know, I'm doing this thing where, you know, now that I've the book is out, um, um, I'm reading it and thinking, oh, you know, maybe this should have gone there and that should have gone <laughs> there or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, it's an organic, ongoing thing. Um, but, yeah, all these uh, different threads, all these different voices, um, you know, when I set out to write the book, um, even before I incorporated the archival materials, I very strongly felt that this was not a story that could be told in a singular voice. Mm. I had, I, I don't know if this makes sense, I heard, you know, all these multiple voices and it was like they were vying to be on the page mm. and I knew I had to have all of these on the page somehow and... Um, the parts where I guess there are sort of lengthy parts that are told in, in one voice, um, that was not sustainable and to keep that going just didn't feel, it just didn't feel true to the story. Mm. So um, as far as uh, how, to, how I integrated all the different voices and perspectives, that was very intuitive. Um, 
uh, I think I just felt that um, when where you have a, a voice playing out and then you'd think you'd immediately think well there, there's something there's something that needs to be interrupted here mm. yeah there's something that needs to be said I don't know how else no, to I think, explain it. I think that makes I think that makes a lot of sense because I, I mean, in my reading, you know, at the heart of this book, it, it's um, it it's people pushing against homogeneity. It's oh, people tussling, absolutely. tussling for their say and their identity and for their their spot amidst this kind of this flattening of a story that is infinitely complex and and the way that you do that is so dancey and light and it makes total <laughs> sense that it would be very tricky to articulate because you've moved beyond words in order to do that which is a wonderful thing in a book I think another way you know um something that really delighted me when I was reading this was um your use of the Cantonese and Taishanese characters throughout the book as a yeah. way of kind of um I think it, it surprises and disrupts the reader but also jolts them, sort of is a way of jolting them into, I suppose, the experience that the characters you're writing about would have had upon arriving in an English-speaking country, you know. Um, and it particularly delighted me. I didn't realise at first that the characters were um, transcribed in the back of the book. And so I read them and, and was doing a lot of guesswork and really enjoying that, <laughs> trying to sort of find it out. And then about halfway through the book, I noticed and flipped back. And a lot of the ones where I was like, I'm not sure what that is. And it was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. That was what the characters were actually saying, you know, these kind of, um, you know, almost banal conversational very human <laughs> things and I was like fantastic you know yeah can, can I ask you I was going to ask you about that actually if you don't mind me asking Please. the question um so you read it through mostly without looking at the translations um first of all uh when you read the translations um did they kind of fit with what you thought they might have been yes yeah. for the most part they did yeah for the most part they did and it was um <laughs> And it was great because I had to, I had to work, and so I should, you know, like, um, and and so I should. And there were times where you know you'd read around it, and you'd read the next bit, and the next bit, and you'd contemplate was kind of what was kind of not there, and you'd be like, oh yeah, I think that what they're talking about, you know, like they're describing a kind of food, or they're describing <laughs> this, or they're describing that, and and I'd be like, oh, or they're exclaiming and they're gushing to their friends, and it would be, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and I was like, perfect, <laughs> I love this. That's so great to hear. Um, you know, when we were editing the book, there was some discussion about where we would put those translations. Mm. And, you know, initially we thought, oh, maybe I initially had them at the bottom of the page. But then um, after some discussion, I had uh, Lisa Gorton, wonderful editor who worked with me on the book. Um, we decided that, you know, we didn't want to take the reading to break up the reading, you know, to go to the bottom of the page and then back again. And so I gave it some thought and I thought, well, as you say, a lot of the the Chinese phrases are, are actually quite banal. And I did think that most non-Chinese readers would be able to figure it out from the context. Mm. And also I wanted readers to be a kind of witness to these scenes, you know, like in real life, you know, when you witness other people speaking languages that you don't understand, you don't have a translator there for mm. you, you know, you're making sense of it 
in the moment. And that is what is wonderful and I think delicious and immediate about this book is that you um, you grip what you can, little bits wash and then you grip them later you know I imagine that this would be a this will be a book that I will come back to many times because I enjoyed talking to the characters I felt like they were talking to me you know um and I I think as one uh jackass fan (laughs) I think that you made the right choice absolutely to include um to include them at the back of the book because it kept the page um neat and clean and 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 honored those voices and gave them the room that they needed which I which I really enjoyed yeah yeah I didn't want them to be a distraction to the you know to the immersion in the story yeah yeah um Grace, I think we've come to a really good time to to hear you read a little a little part of Chinese fish. Can you tell us what um, what extract of the book have you selected for us? Sure, um, I'm reading from a sequence called "For the Good Husband," which is uh, the second half of the book. And in this sequence of poems, uh, it, this is a kind of coming of age sequence, and it features, amongst other things. Um, a wedding, and so the uh, sequence of poems that I'm going to read are sort of around this wedding. Fantastic! Yeah. All right, I'll hand it over to you. Thank you. The most extraordinary thing about the Chinese woman is that she curls her hair and dances. They have not been out further than the shops at the end of the street on the back of his Honda 250cc. He did invite her swimming in their parapool once. Just the two of them it would have been, but her mother forbade it. No, she said, stay inside, tan too dark, pinch bruising her arm and dragging her off to another pink carnation Chinese wedding where she danced all night with a fumbling Pakeha boy who tore her brand new silken pantyhose in the coat room that smelled of opium and Ajax, while the band played the chicken dance. Prompted by the interviewer, she stated that even if her parents did not approve, she would certainly consider marriage to a Pakeha man if she were in love with him. What is the point of this anecdote? Is this a story about assimilation or, God forbid... Miscegenation? This cherry character doesn't seem very Chinese. Could you put her in a chung sum or have her wipe a few grains of rice from her mouth? Or explore the Pakeha boy's point of view, perhaps? How does he feel kissing this exotic Chinese girl? Does she taste like soy sauce? I have never worn a chiang sum. He tasted like cheddar cheese. (laughs) That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much, Grace Yi, reading from her wonderful book, Chinese Fish. Grace, you are going to be launching that book next week on Wednesday the 9th at the Alderman, is that correct? Yes, that's right. And I'll be joined uh, by uh, some fellow ex-Aotearoa poets, um, Manisha Anjali, Ramesh Disanayaki, Sarada Kuala, uh, Xiao Li Zhan and Alison Wong. 
Oh, how fantastic. Um, I'll absolutely be there and I hope that you will too. I'm talking to the listeners, obviously, Gracie, will be there. <laughs> thank you so much, Grace. And thank you, everybody who has tuned in to Literati Glitterati on Triple R today. I'm just about out of time, but do stick around. Um, Queer View Mira will be coming up very, very shortly. And next week on the show, we've got an exciting one. Uh, Madison Griffiths will be coming in to talk about her debut memoir, Tissue, and Selena Lay, who will be talking to us about Art hu- Arts Hub newly launched Amplify Collective, which is a group of talented and diverse writers who are looking to bring fresh, fresh perspectives to the forefront. It should be a really good show. And a really Thanks for listening to the podcast of Literati Glitterati, a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday to 1pm. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and please feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.